This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 2 as we continue in our study of the book of Colossians, rooted and built up how Jesus is enough for life. And you're going to see those themes coming out in this text today. In fact, the title of the series, Rooted and Built Up, is taken from one of the verses that we're going to look at today. We're going to read from verse 6 of chapter 2 through verse 14, although we're going to be covering through the end of chapter 2 today. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pews, it's page 984 if you want to follow along in the English Standard Version, which is the translation that I'll be preaching from. Colossians 2, and let's begin reading at the 6th verse. Paul here is talking about knowing who you are in Christ. Knowing who you are in Christ is so crucial in living the Christian life. Let's begin with verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Father, we thank you for the glorious good news of this passage. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the cancellation of our sin debt that we could be forgiven of that, that the burden could be lifted, that we are forgiven and free in Christ, complete in Christ, and alive in Christ. And Father, we know that's so important that we understand our identity in you, that we understand who we are in you. Show us that in a fresh way and in a deeper way right now. Hetty Green was known as one of America's greatest misers. When she died in 1916, she had amassed a fortune of over $100 million, and yet tales of her stinginess abound, refusing to to turn on the heat, uh, eating cold oatmeal to save money from, uh, so she wouldn't have to heat 
water, wearing the same old black dress day after day after day, and only uh, washing the dirtiest parts of it to, to save money on soap. You know, a lot of Christians treat their spiritual resources the way that Hetty Green treated her financial resources. And it's because they don't understand who they are in Christ. They don't understand the spiritual riches that they have in Christ. That's really what this text is, is showing us. And I want us to look at it in three parts. First of all, live out who you are. We see this in verses 6 and 7. Let's begin in, in verse 6. Paul says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You received Christ. You welcomed him into your life. Now, he says, now live that out. Walk in that. So what does that look like? And what does that look like when a whole bunch of people do that together as a church family? Well, in verse 7, he uses four phrases to describe what it looks like. The first two really go, to, to go together. He says that we're rooted and built up in him. He uses the images here of a tree and of a building, a tree whose roots are going down deep. A building that is being built up, that's being shaped and formed into something beautiful. Well, these things take time, don't they? It takes time for the roots of the tree to go down deep. It takes time for that, that beautiful building to take shape. And, and, and there's also no such thing as sort of a, a microwave spiritual maturity but as we continue to grow in Christ, as we immerse ourselves in God's word, as we pray, as we do life together as a church family and experience Christian fellowship with one another, as we learn how to, how to serve in the church and give to the church, we, we begin to mature and the roots go down deeper and the, and the building begins to be formed and we're under construction into something beautiful into, we're being shaped and formed into the image of Christ. And, and then he, say, he uses another phrase here in verse 7, doesn't he? He says that we're established in the faith. And notice here the presence of the definite article, the faith. Yes, we're growing in faith. We're growing in, in, in learning how to trust God. That's true. It's really the heart of the Christian life. But here he uses the definite article. He says, you're, we're growing in the faith. That's the faith that is talked about in Jude 3 when Jude says the faith, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, unchanging, unchanging the truth of the word of God. When the neo-Orthodox theologian Karl Barth was touring the United States in the 1960s, he had a press conference and uh, people were able to stand up and ask him questions. And one of the people who stood up to ask Dr. Bart a question was Carl F.H. Henry, who was a theologian himself, conservative American uh, theologian, evangelical theologian. And, uh, and he, he, they, when the reporter stood up, they identified themselves as to which magazine they represented. And so Carl Henry stood up and he, and he said that he represented uh, Christianity Today magazine, which was a, a conservative uh, magazine. And uh, when he said that, Bart kind of sneered, and he said, uh, Christianity today, you mean Christianity yesterday? And Henry didn't miss a beat. He said, Christianity yesterday, today, and forever. It, it, the truth doesn't change. It is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
And he says that we're to be established in that, in the unchanging truth of God's word. But we not only want to be a church that is sound in doctrine, but we want to be a church that is spirit-filled in demeanor. What else does he say here in verse 7? He says we're to be abounding in thanksgiving, a happy church, a grateful church, the kind of church that's described in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Well, what did these Christians in Colossae have to be so thankful for? I mean, we saw last week they were, um, most of them were, were, were poor. All of them were persecuted. Why, what did they have to be joyful, so joyful and thankful about? Well, it was the gospel. It was what Christ had done for them. And that's the second thing that Paul's talking about here, the fact, the fact that we are complete in Christ, complete in Christ. What does he say in, 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 uh, in verse 8? He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, some people have looked at the beginning of this verse where he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, and said, well, you know, we, as Christians, we shouldn't study philosophy. If you're a Christian college student, you shouldn't major in philosophy. Well, that's, that's bad biblical interpretation, frankly. That's, that's not what he's saying here. He's not talking about studying philosophy. He's talking about being taken captive by a false philosophy, and specifically, he's talking about the false philosophy that was in danger of, of taking these people captive in the Colossian church. Now, the word captive here, when he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, that word captive in Greek literally means the plundering of cargo from a ship. But what was in danger of being stolen in the Colossian church was far more precious than cargo from a ship. It was the souls of these people. He says, look, you, you guys are in danger of, of, of having your souls stolen, of, of being taken captive by this false teaching. So how are they to protect themselves? How are we to protect ourselves against being taken captive by some false, uh, false philosophy of the world. It's to understand who we are in Christ. And he begins to unpack that in verses 9 and 10. Let's look at it. He says, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. Now, notice the, the, the presence of the of forms of, of the word fill here in both verses 9 and 10. He tells them in verse 9, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God. And then he says in verse 10, and you have been filled in him. Now, most scholars believe that what Paul is doing here is that he's parroting the words of the false teachers in Colossae. You see, what they were trying to tell these people was that, look, it's fine that you've received Jesus, but now we're going to fill you out. You need to be rounded out, and, and we're going we're we're to give you uh, these additions to Jesus that you need if you really want to experience the fullness of God. And Paul is saying, no, no, don't buy it. 
Christ is enough. In, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. What more could you want? But this is what they were trying to do. They were saying, trying to say Jesus is not enough. It's kind of like that, that commercial for the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the, the Mormons. And in the commercial, uh, a young woman comes out, and she's, she's holding a Bible, and she says, you know what? I grew up with this book, and I love this book, but I never really understood this book until I read this book. And she holds up a Book of Mormon, the other hand. That's, that's what was happening here in Colossae. They were saying, hey, we're going to give you something more than Christ. Paul is saying, no, you are complete in Christ. Look at verse 11. He says, in him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, this this indicates that the false teachers in Colossae were probably Jewish in origin. We're going to see they mixed in some, some folk elements of, of pag- the pagan mysticism around them in Colossae. But they were, the false teachers were probably Jewish in origin. And what was happening here was that most of the people in the Colossian church were Gentiles. And they were coming in and they were telling these Gentile Christians, look, if you really want to be right with God, then you've got to be, you've got to be circumcised. And Paul was saying, no. No, because in Christ, you've already received a circumcision that is infinitely more significant. A circumcision made without hands, a circumcision of your heart. You've been made a a new creation in Christ. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 15. Galatians 6 and verse 15 For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And how do we become a new creation? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's Christ that makes us new. Now, in addition to trying to get them to submit to circumcision, they had a whole litany. Of, of regulations and traditions and superstitions that they were trying to, to force upon these people. And, he, and he, gives, he lists a bunch of them in verses 16 through 22. Let's look at it. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So what was happening is that they were trying to, 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 uh, to force Old Testament food laws dietary laws upon these Gentile believers and also some of the, 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 uh, the events on the Old Testament Jewish calendar. They were trying to say to these Gentiles, look, if you really want the fullness of God, you've got to check off all these boxes. You've got to do all these different things. But what does he say in verse 17? He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why 
as if you were still alive in the world? Do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Now again, these, these false teachers were trying to say, Christ is not enough. You've got to check off all these boxes, all these ceremonial laws and food laws and Sabbath laws and all these different things. You know, we're here to tell you the whole truth. We're here to fill you out. And Paul is saying, no, no, you are complete in, in, in Christ. And by the way, if you were to do all of those things, would it really produce a holy life? Would it really help you overcome sin? No, no. What does he say in verse 23? He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can do all these things on the outside and still be absolutely rotten on the inside which is what Jesus told the Pharisees, right? You know, they were so concerned about all these food laws and what they were, were going to eat, but that, that wasn't the problem. What did Jesus tell them in Mark chapter 7? And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus says, look guys, you got it all wrong. You're so preoccupied with, with, with the food that you're eating as if that's going to defile you. No, you're looking at the wrong thing. You need to be concerned not with what you're putting in your mouth, but, but, but what's coming out of your heart. Because all of these evil things, they, they come from within, from the heart. And that's what defiles. Now, we can also gather from verse 23 that these false teachers were into asceticism. He uses that word twice, doesn't he? He uses it in verse 23 and also mentions asceticism in verse 18. Asceticism is the view that by being harsh with our body that we can somehow grow spiritually. And so ascetics will do things like just um, sometimes even engaging in beating themselves, whipping themselves. There's some evidence that some of the pagan cults in Colossae engaged in, in that type of thing. And, and, and even in Christian history in certain forms of monasticism, We've seen uh, types of asceticism. For instance, when Martin Luther became a monk, he engaged in all kinds of ascetic practices in order to try to please God. He would, he would, he would go for nights on end without sleep, deprive himself of sleep. He would sleep sometimes during the winter with, without a blanket, and then he would take a, a whip and, 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 and flog himself. 
in order to try to somehow atone for his sins. But what, did, what changed things for Martin Luther? What changed things was when he understood the gospel and he understood that Jesus had already atoned for his sins. He understood that Jesus Christ had already been whipped for him and that Christ had been deprived for him and that Christ had taken his very sins upon himself and atoned for them and that if he would simply trust in the Savior, that he could be forgiven and free. That's the gospel. And that's where Paul is going to next. He says that we're not only complete in Christ, but alive in Christ. Let's check out verses 12 and 13. He says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Now, this is the story of, of us all as Christians. Once we were dead, we were absolutely spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. And thank God, he specializes in the resurrection business. <laughs> and his spirit made us alive when we trusted in Jesus. He's raised us spiritually from the dead. Now, what pictures all of this? What pictures this? The fact that we were once dead in sin and now we've been made alive and that we're united by faith to a Savior who was dead, who was buried, and who was raised from the dead. What is it that pictures all of this? It's baptism. It's baptism. What does he say again in, 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 in verse 12? He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul says to these Colossian believers, he says, guys, do you remember your baptism? Remember the day that you were baptized? What was that all about? What did that mean? Your baptism was a picture on the outside of what had happened to you spiritually on the inside. When you were baptized, what happened? You were buried, right? You were lowered beneath the water, which that's what the word baptism means. The Greek word for baptism means to immerse or plunge beneath the water. Can't mean anything else, okay? He says you were buried with him in baptism, okay? When you were lowered beneath the water the day of your baptism, what did that represent? It represented the fact that you are united to a Savior who died and was buried. And the old you has been buried. You're new in Christ. And then when you were raised up out of the water, what did that signify? It's resurrection. You're united to a Savior who was raised from the dead, and you have been raised to walk in newness of life. Do you remember that? You've been, you've, you've been given a whole new life. By the way, if you're here and you're a believer in Christ, you've placed your faith in him, and you haven't yet been baptized as a believer, I want to encourage you to do that. It doesn't save you, okay? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But out of obedience, because we love Jesus and we're so thankful to him for what he's done, we want to we obey him. And believer's baptism is, is a matter of, of obeying him. Very significant. 
And what else does he say here at the, at the end of, of verse 13? He says that he's forgiven us all our trespasses. Ah, he's forgiven us all of our trespasses, past, present, future. It's all under the blood of Christ. How did God do it? How, how did God, how, how, does, how, does, how, how did a holy God who hates sin and who must punish sin because he's righteous and holy, how does a holy God who hates sin and must punish it, how did he forgive sinners like us all of our trespasses? How did that happen? Verse 14 tells us exactly how it happened. He did it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now most of us are familiar with, with some form of, of debt. But we know what it's like to, 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 to pay on, on some kind of a, of a loan, a, a house payment, or, 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 or whatever, whatever it is. But what energizes us and what gives us hope is that one day it's going to be paid off. But imagine a debt that was completely unpayable. In fact, not only could you not pay it throughout the rest of the course of your life, but there would be absolutely no hope of paying it throughout all eternity. You would be eternally crushed beneath this weight of debt, never released from it. Well, listen, that was our condition. That, that's our condition without Christ. That's it. He talks here in verse 14 about a, about a record of debt that stood against us. In, in, in the Greco-Roman world, that record of debt was a written notice of indebtedness. And notice what he says here about it. He says that record of debt, what? It stood against us. It was against us. It was threatening us with the penalty for failure to pay it. And the penalty was not a bad credit rating. And the penalty was not having our property seized. And the penalty was not even imprisonment. The penalty was eternal separation from God forever in hell. But what did God do? What did he do? Verse 14 tells us he canceled it. The word here means he wiped it out. He wiped it completely out. Wipe the slate clean. For all who trust in Christ, he's canceled the debt. It's gone. It's lifted. But how did he do that? Did God just tear up the record of debt and just say, oh, well, let's let bygones be bygones? God can't do that because he's holy. He's righteous. He has to punish sin. God couldn't pretend that the indebtedness never existed. What did he do? In love, he became a human being who had no sin, and he went to the cross, and he paid the debt. He paid it in full. Sam Storms says this, we are no longer in default on the debt because Jesus paid it all. Whatever we owed, paid. Whatever penalty we incurred, he endured. We sung it earlier. 
my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Is that the case for you? Have you trusted in the Savior in the one who paid your debt. Let's pray. As we bow before the Lord, he invites you to come to him. Maybe you came into this room today with, with questions really about what the gospel is all about. What's, what's Christianity really all about? Well, this is what it's all about. It's about a savior. A Savior who did for us what, what we could never do, who paid a debt that we could never pay and was raised from the dead so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. You say, Pastor, what must I do? Turn to Christ right now and trust Him. Trust Him. Welcome Him into your life by faith. The Bible says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you call upon Christ right now to save you? Say, Lord Jesus, I know I can't save myself, but I believe that on the cross you paid for my sin debt. I believe that you were raised from the dead, and right now I turn from trying to do life apart from you, and I trust in you and your finished work for me. I rest in what you have done for me. Is that the cry of your heart today? Express that to Christ. And Jesus tells us that when we trust him, that we're to acknowledge him publicly. And we do that through believer's baptism, as we talked about earlier. And if you're here today, and, and, and you're, you're a Christian, or maybe you've received Christ today, or at some point in the past, you've never been, been baptized as a, as a believer. As we stand and sing in just a moment, I want to invite you to come. And just share with me what God has done in your life. We'll set up a time for you to be baptized as a believer. And what a joyous day it'll be. Maybe you're here this morning. You would say, I want to be a part of this church family. I want to be a part of what God is, God is doing in the life of this church. We want to invite you to come. If you've got a need in your life that you need prayer for, we invite you to come. So, Father, we give you now this time of invitation. Lord, would you work in hearts and lives now? You know we're, what the decisions that, that each person needs to make. Work in our hearts right now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer and find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.